Take your Bibles, open to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 this morning as we continue in our study of the gospel according to John. John chapter 17, and uh, remind you, if you would check your phones, make sure they're turned off or silenced, would be helpful. John chapter 17, this morning, the title of the message this morning is the real Lord's Prayer. Now, we often associate Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 13 as the Lord's Prayer when the disciples uh, asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But really, uh, to be correct, that's really the disciples' prayer. Because you remember in that prayer... The Lord is instructing His disciples and says, Forgive us of our sins, forgive us of our debts, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Well, that's not a prayer Jesus would or could pray. He has no sin. That's a disciple's prayer. But in John 17 is the real Lord's prayer because it is the Lord praying. What's so awesome about this, and this is what makes... The Gospel of John such a unique uh, blessing that the Holy Spirit has given to us in His Word is because we're able to go inside uh, and almost like, uh, you know, the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple, the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, only the the high priest could go in there once a year. And, And so we're able to go and listen in in an intimate conversation between Jesus and the Father. And we get that recorded here through John, through the Holy Spirit. And so we learn things here that we don't discover or learn anywhere else in Scripture. So it's a wonderful... uh, Chapter 17 is a a, a deep, wonderful chapter that we are not going to in any way do justice this morning because of so much that is here. And in here, in John 17... In the real Lord's Prayer, because this is Jesus praying for himself and for others, he prays for three things. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, then and now, and then he prays for his church, not Grace Church, even though we're part of the church, he prays for the church. You know, he prays, uh, remember, this is within hours of when he would be arrested taken and crucified. Uh, these, this uh, period between John 13 and, say, 17, we call that the upper room discourse where he is, uh, you know, the other gospels, we refer to it as the Last Supper, and it's in that time. Well, John gives us some much deeper uh, information, or not information, but uh, uh, things that actually Jesus taught to his disciples. We don't see this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in the Gospel of John. So from chapter 13 through uh, 17 uh, is all pretty much one uh, event happening with Jesus uh, teaching or uh, instructing his disciples before he would be taken and crucified on the cross. So it's a lot of, and we've, again, we've just really skimmed the surface over the last several weeks and looking at these chapters. But in this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in chapter 17, we get a sense of what's really important 
to the Lord Jesus. If you were praying uh, the hours before you would be taken and killed, uh, your prayer, which you would pray for, would tell a lot about what is important to you, right? Are we with you? Are we all together here? Did we get a memo that we're supposed to... Hey, don't go to sleep. I'll preach longer, all right? And I'll turn the air conditioner and make it colder. All right, we got ways. The doors are locked, so you can't do nothing, all right? So, uh, no, we, uh, you know, we, we, if we knew that we were going to be taken and, and, and our death was imminent within in any moment, we wouldn't pray and say, Lord, oh, I just wish that I'd put in more overtime at work. You know, all the things that we are, we get so caught up in trivialities, but we learn of what's really on the heart of Jesus in John chapter 17. This morning, we're going to look at four aspects. And what is really wonderful in just looking at this, and again, there's, it's, we could come at this all different ways, but we're just trying to give a little taste here, is as Jesus is praying and he is interceding to the heavenly, his Father, our Father, uh, we learn that as we go through these things that the answers to what Jesus is praying for, we discover that we are the answers to those very prayers. So this morning, I want you to look again in John chapter 17, and we're going to look at how we can become the answer to Jesus' prayer when four things happen. And again, this is more of just a, a flyover to give a little taste of John 17. We are the answer to Jesus' prayer, number one, when God is getting the glory. Okay, notice what Jesus prays in John 17, verse 1. He, Jesus spoke these words, and it says he lifted his eyes to heaven. Well, he's praying, and that was a very traditional Jewish way to pray. A lot of times when we see paintings of Jesus praying, uh, he's looking down or he's kneeling down. We pray looking down. But it says he looked, lifted his eyes to heaven. And more than likely, he didn't necessarily close his eyes. His eyes were wide open as he spoke and prayed to his father, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour that was predestined and foretold beginning with that promise in Genesis 3.15 of the seed of the seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then, um, then we'll save that for another time. But that promise that God unfolded, came to its fruition where Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. In this uh, uh, chapter, depending on your translation, but roughly eight times the word glory uh, is mentioned in this prayer. Jesus talks about God's glory, His glory, using us, Him, glorify Himself. What does it mean to, uh, what does glory mean? Well, the Hebrew word, uh, kavod, speaks of, and we've talked about this in other places, uh, literally means weight, the weight, the heaviness. The glory of the Lord is the weight or the heaviness of God and who He is. Now, again, we're limited to human language, but when it speaks about the glory, we're sensing the awesome weight 
of God, the weight of God, the glory of God. But it also uh, means to uh, bring something into the open, to bring something into the open, to show it, to make it known. For example, in, uh, you remember in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus took three of his disciples, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, and they went up to the mountain, and it, it's referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus was glorified, meaning the weight of who Jesus was as the Son of God. Uh, these three disciples were privileged to experience that. Remember, Peter got really excited and wanted to set up, and there in that glorification where they saw, and this is my word, where they saw Jesus' godness. I mean, they saw the glory, the weight of the glory of God that was upon Jesus. And in that, in that Mount of Transfiguration, uh, there was Moses and Elijah, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. So in since the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets affirming that Jesus is the Son of God. And remember Peter wanted to set up three little memorials and say, hey, this is great. Let's set up one for Moses and Elijah. And the Bible says that as Peter was talking, God just said, Enough of that foolishness. He just interrupted him and said, This is my son. Hear him. The others are just representatives. Jesus is superior. He's the penultimate of my glory. Hear him. And so we get a sense of the glory of Jesus manifested. But what, did, what happened there? Glory is to make something known. What did Jesus do in that Mount of Transfiguration? He revealed or made himself known in the glory. The glory was revealed, all right? And so that's a sense of what glory is, to show, to make known. John 1.14 begins by that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, John 1.14. Jesus said, for He received from God the Father honor and glory, that the voice came to Him from the excellent glory. Remember when Jesus was baptized? And the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the glory of Jesus has been made known. And in John 17, 1, as Jesus is praying, Jesus says, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Jesus wants to show His glory in us and through us. And He prays. He shows His glory. But also it says in that prayer... He says, glorify your son. The hour has come. What's coming? The cross. And this may sound contradictory, but the most glorious moment of God's glory was when the pure, unblemished Lamb of God was sacrificed for our sins and the glory of God, that God demonstrated His justness and His justification through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Romans weren't glorified. The Pharisees weren't glorified. God was glorified and magnified as a God of great grace and great mercy. And so Jesus says, glorify your son. Jesus said in John 17, 22, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them. The glory that you gave me, I have given to them. And so how is God's glory, how is his glory that's been given to us through Jesus uh, how is God glorified 
through me. Real simply, we see it where Jesus said that in verse 22. He said, the glory uh, which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. God's, God is glorified in me just as Jesus was glorified. Look at John 17, 4. I kind of jumping ahead, guys, up there. John 17, 4, where Jesus says in verse 4 of John 17, as he's praying, I have glorified you on the earth. I have what? Are you all watching, paying attention? I have what? Finished. You know what finished means in the Greek, in the Hebrew, in the Aramaic, in the Russian, in the German? It means finished, done, no more. When you're done with your chores, I am finished. And my dad would always come back and say, you are not finished. You're not even near finished. Jesus finished. What did he do? He finished the work that he had been given to do. And so in that finishing, in that completing, in that fulfilling, he glorified God. So if fulfilling and obedience to God's will is one of the ways and the primary ways that we glorify God, then that's, that's how Jesus did that. You remember in Philippians 2, it says, And being found in appearance as a man, Philippians 2, 8 and 9, that he humbled, some, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So giving, if you want to put it in a sentence on your outline there, you can put this in there. Giving God glory in a sentence is simply this. I did what God gave me to do. You want something really radical and glorifying to God to put on your tombstone? It's saying, it says he finished, she finished what God gave them to do. Jesus said, I have glorified your name. I have finished what you have sent me to accomplish what you have sent me to do. But notice, secondly, we are the answer to Jesus' prayer, not just when we're experiencing God's glory in our own lives and showing it by our reflection and obedience to Christ, but secondly, we are the answer to Jesus' prayer when we are living in security. When we're living in security. Let me unpack that. When Jesus starts to pray for his disciples, he talks about God's security over their lives. He's praying and says that God, he's praying to the Father that you would protect those that you have given to me. Look at verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. I don't remember the reference, you can look it up later, but I think about the conversation he had with Peter, where he tells Peter, he says, Peter, Satan has requested your life, paraphrasing it. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to take you out. But what does Jesus say? But I have prayed for you. I have stepped in, and he can't lay a hand on you. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That the Lord Jesus Christ steps in and protects us and watches over. He says, I have kept them in your name, verse 12. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, speaking of Judas. And says that the scripture might be fulfilled. It's interesting of what he doesn't pray for. 
He says, I want you to keep them. I want you to keep them uh, in this world, protect them. And notice what he doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray that somehow they would escape the world, that somehow they would avoid the, the world. And when I'm using the wor- word world, I'm not talking about the cosmos in the sense of the planet. World is used in the New Testament that speaks of the system, the godless system, the culture, the mindset, the worldly uh, way of thinking, the worldly anti-God way of uh, uh, mindset that permeates the culture and, and our, our, uh, our, our nation, our world, our globe, right? And so protecting us, in protecting us necessarily from the, the planet per se, but protecting us from the system, the mindset of a godless age. In case you have been asleep for a while, we live in a godless age. It doesn't mean that God isn't among us. It just means that our, our system, our culture, has moved further and further and is moving further into an anti-Christ spirit that isn't, we're not waiting for it. it it's been and here among us, in fact, even in 1 John, uh, 1 John even says to those first century believers that there are many antichrists in the earth. Antichrist spirit. Jesus is saying, I pray that you would protect them within the world. He doesn't pray, I want you to get them an escape hatch to get them out. He says, I want you to pray. I, I pray that you would watch over them, protect them within the world. Jesus said, that you are the salt of the earth. Talking about our influence within the culture. He says you're a light of the world, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You're a, you're a light set on a hill. You can't be hidden. You know, again, it's not like some religious groups that believe the way to serve God is to kind of resign themselves from the culture. You see this even in the beginnings of what was referred to as the monasteries, the monks, and they just withdrew. Even before that, in the Jewish culture, culture, you had a group called the Essenes. And they just withdrew and studied Scripture and just kept to themselves. Uh, you see in, in the culture, you see the Amish and other religious groups. Again, I'm not questioning their sincerity, but it's, but it's contrary to the way that Jesus wants the church to operate. Again, where we are the salt, we are the light. And Jesus says, I pray for their protection that you would keep them. How is he going to do this? A few things there on your, uh, on your listener's guide. Protect them how? Verse 12, by the power of God's name. The power of God's name. We talk about the name of God. We're speaking about, that speaks of God's character. But protect them from what? He says also from what is in uh, verse 11 is the world. And again, we, we, we refer to that again. We're not talking about the cosmos, the planet, but we're talking about the culture, the systems, the human organization that has organized itself without God. It's that culture back in the days of Babylon that set itself up to, to take dominion and take authority and, and resist God. Verse 11, Jesus said, Now I'm no longer in the world, but these who are in the world... And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them through your name, 
those whom you have given me. In other words, they're in the world, and he's praying for the protection while we are in the world. He doesn't say, I want you to get them out of the world. He wants the prayer of protection while you are in the world. Keep them. Watch over them. And the way that, again, we do that is that we have to guard ourselves against the worldly, the godless mindsets that attack us and come against us every single day. The Bible tells us in Romans 12, 2, to not be conformed to this world. The uh, paraphrase by J.B. Phillips that uh, is, uh, you don't see a lot today, but I love the way he paraphrases Romans 12, 2. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. You realize that's what it's trying to do 24-7? He says, but don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your minds, changing the way you think, the New Living Translation says. And notice what Jesus says back in, the, in what he's praying in chapter 17, verse 14. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of, that means their origin is not of this world. Why has the world hated them? Because Jesus says, I have given them my what? My truth. Why does the worldly culture, the culture, hate Christianity? Because of the truth. Because of the truth. The Bible says a man is a man and a woman is a woman. There's not third, fourth, fifth, sixth options. The world hates when marriage is defined by one man and one woman married unto the Lord. A male, biological, like, do I have to explain this? But this is where we are. You see, God does not stutter. God does not hiccup. God's word is clear. Why does the culture hate you? Look, it doesn't hate you because you support a certain candidate for president. The world is going to hate Christians because Jesus said, the world hated me, Jesus said, and if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they came after me, they're coming after you. And see, the one way we can just comp, we can just Avoid this is like the little scrawny kid that was put in to the football game in the fourth quarter with one minute left to play. He didn't get to play all season because he was too little. And the coach said, all right, I'm going to let you play. And they're going to give you the ball on the last play, and you're going to run as fast as you can to the, touch, to the end zone, the touchdown. That little scrawny kid got in there and he had these guys that were two, three hundred pounds coming after him with a vigilance. And he realized that it wasn't them, it wasn't him they wanted. They wanted what he, what he had. You know what he did? He gave them the ball and guess what they did? They went after the ball and you see that would be easy for Christians to do. The truth, just give up the truth. Just throw it away compromise, be politically correct, be woke, whatever terminology you want to use, but don't get this thing too seriously. Just don't carry the ball of the truth 
and they'll leave you alone. Yeah, they'll leave you alone because they hate the truth. And if you're, not a, if you're a church, if you're a person who's not engaged and committed to the truth and you want to just kind of have a watered down, really no gospel at all, then you never have to worry about anybody hating you because of your faith. But he also prays not only for protection from the world, but also prays that they'd be protected from the evil one, and that's Satan. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9, actually let me read 17, 15, sorry, John 17, 15. Jesus said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. There it is again. I'm not praying that you take them out, but that you should keep them and keep them from the evil one. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9 now, says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. You want spiritual warfare? That's where it starts, is putting yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Verse 7, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. That's where spiritual warfare starts, is being committed and submitted to God. Then verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like, like. Doesn't say he is. There's only one roaring lion of Judah, all right? He walks about like a roaring lion. He walks about to intimidate, seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith. That means you're holding on to that metaphor. You're holding on to that ball and running as hard as you can for the glory of God. You're holding on to truth. You're remaining steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by other brothers around the world. And why should we protect them? We'll talk about why does the Lord pray for this protection? He said in verse 20, he says that they may be one. Verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me. We're going to unpack that a little more in just a moment. But he also says that the reason why he wants God to protect them is according to verse 13, that my joy may be filled, fulfilled in them. I have the amplified version of John 17, 13. It's, uh, you know, if you understand what the amplified is, the amplified uh, seeks to... Uh, draw out some of the uh, deeper meanings of the Greek and the Hebrew. And again, it's a helpful thing when you're uh, trying to maybe study languages or whatever, and it's a very helpful uh, uh, aspect, a Bible study tool. But notice how verse 13 reads. And this, again, is trying to bring out some of the nuances in the Greek. Same verse, Jesus is praying, "...and now I am coming to you," he prays, I say these things while I am still in the world so that my joy may be full and complete and perfect in them. And you have brackets there, and that's trying to bring out some of the, the, the aspects of the Greek there in, what, in the phraseology saying that my joy may be full and complete and perfect in them. That is, that they may experience my delight fulfilled in them, that my enjoyment may be perfected in their souls, that they may have my gladness within them filling their hearts. You see how that brings out and makes that, okay, now I see what he's saying. It's not just 
that I'm happy and giddy. That's not what biblical joy is. But he's praying that my joy, my pleasure, my enjoyment, my gladness may fill their hearts. You see, we confuse joy and happiness. The Bible talks about joy. But you'll, you may have said and have had people say, well, I just believe that God wants me to be happy. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances. You go to a good parking place at Target or Publix, you're happy. Right? And you stand in a long self-checkout line, and you're not happy. And then the thing rings up twice. And it won't let you remove it. You have to get somebody to come over, put in their code, and take it out. The only problem is, on a Saturday, at a store I will name, not name, everybody in North Lakeland is trying to do the same thing. You get the idea. Happiness is just, and that's kind of what Jesus, maybe part of what he was getting at when he talked about in John 14, 27, he talked about, my peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives. How does the world give? It gives temporarily. Everything the world offers is, is paid in counterfeit money. It's good for nothing. It's worthless. And it gives you a temporary sense. But what happens when the, when the euphoria is over, I told you a story like when I bought my first car, first new car, it, the ink wasn't even dry. And I was out on Virginia Beach Boulevard in Virginia Beach and the first thing that it was a Nissan, oh, what was it? Sentra, I think, Sentra. That was a long time ago. Um, and the first thing out of my mouth, I said, I mean, I went, the ink wasn't dry. I'm out there, brand new car, you know, 21, whatever. Paying on it for eternity, whatever. First thing out of my mouth, I said, next time I want a Maxima. I wasn't even satisfied with what I had, and I was already wanting something new. And it just hit me how ungrateful and what, what, how I was. But we're like that, aren't we? Jesus says, my joy, my peace transcends the outward. That means you can have the gladness of God. Jesus prays that they would know the gladness, the enjoyment of, that I have. That I have, he prays, between you and I, that they would have that joy and perfected in their souls so that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil. In fact, you can whistle through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because you know that his rod and his staff comfort, protect you, and watch over you. That's what Jesus is praying. And that's what it means that we fulfill. Jesus prayed for me and prayed for you that we would know his security and his protection in an evil, sinful world. But thirdly, we are the answer to Jesus' prayer when third, we are growing in maturity or we're growing in likeness to Jesus. Jesus says in John 17, 17, sanctify them 
by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, we've talked about sanctification a lot, and we talk about the theological understanding of sanctification and how that's part of uh, when you understand the, the, the salvation of justification, sanctification, glorification, that I am saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved, that it's the totality of the walk of the believer from justification, sanctification, glorification, that sanctification is the application of the gospel, the application of justification in the believer's life. It is the application where we are, by God's Spirit, we are being separated or set apart. Sanctification means to separate or set apart for God's specific purpose. It means being used for God's intended purpose. How many of you know, you should know, that God has a specific intent and purpose of why He saved you. He has a purpose for your life. He has a will for your life. He has meaning for your life. And that means He wants you to be sanctified so that you will learn to be set apart for the intended purpose for which He has predestined you to be. For example, sanctification is when something is used for the purpose that it was intended for. If you drove here today, you sanctified your car. Meaning, you used your car for what it was intended and purposed to do. You with me? When you went to Taco Bell Friday night. And got 27 tacos. You sanctified those tacos by using those tacos for their intended purpose by eating them. When you brushed your teeth today, you sanctified that toothbrush because you set it apart for its intended purpose and use. What does Jesus pray for his people in the maturity that the Bible talks about that we would grow into the full stature of the Son of Man in Christ, that we would fulfill our intended purpose, sanctify them. How? Through your truth. Through your truth. That's one of the ways that Jesus sanctifies us or helps us to grow into our intended purpose. Verse 19, John 17, 19, and for their sakes... Jesus says, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. The truth is the key. What is our truth? Our truth is the revealed will of God and the Word of God. That we have the Scriptures. We have the Word of God. You cannot grow apart from the Word of God. So don't neglect it. I like it's attributed to D.L. Moody and maybe others. But what D.L. Moody wrote in the opening of his Bible, and I don't think I did it in this one. I've done it in most of, uh, most of the ones that I have. Where D.L. Moody wrote in the opening of his Bible, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Some of you were daydreaming about Golden Corral. I'm going to read it again. This book, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. You know why people don't want to be exposed to truth? You know why people don't want to be exposed to 
even among Christians? Because of the truth. They'd rather attack, vilify, or just avoid. Because see, what they say is, well, I don't want to be condemned. I don't want to be condemned either. But they mistake the conviction of the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say in chapter 16 that one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is that when He comes, He will convict the world of what? Of their political affiliation. Is that what He says? No. He will convict the world of their sin. And see, church, we need to let the Holy Spirit do the job of that. When we get in trouble is when we take that role and we start trying to get sin out of people. Like what Jim Cymbalist said, we need to quit being focused on trying to lead sin out of people and start being focused on leading people out of sin. You see the difference? You see the difference in where our focus is? But notice verse 20 of chapter 17, something that I'm just going to fit in here. Jesus said, I don't pray for these alone, these 11 disciples. But again, I have the amplified, verse 20. He said, neither for these do I pray. And you see the brackets there. They're trying to bring out maybe a little more from the Greek. Neither for these alone do I pray. It is not for their sake only that I make this request. But also for all those who will ever come to believe in. Parentheses, that means trust in, cling to rely on me through their word and teaching. Do you see right here, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for you and for me. Now, some of you missed that. I'm going to read it again. Not only do I pray for these 11, 11, because Judas went his way, but I pray for those who will come to me through them. Guess what? We are on the disciples' downline here today. We're reading the Gospel of John. We're gathered as followers of Jesus. Jesus prayed for you. Prayed for me in that John 17 prayer. And not only did he pray for us there, but guess what? He is still praying for us. The scripture in your, your uh, outline that I have there, I don't think I have it on the screen, but Romans 8, 34, that Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding, praying for us. He's doing that right now. Hebrews 7.25, therefore Christ is also able to save to the uttermost, from the guttermost to the uttermost, those who come to God through Him since He always lives, He's resurrected and ascended, always lives to make intercession for them. First John says that we have an advocate. We have one that stands always. And you know what he's doing? Again, I said that, and as soon as I said that, I'm like, I don't really know. I'm going to guesstimate here. I think I have some secret information here. But I think it has something to do with that covenant. That that covenant is an eternal blood covenant, isn't it? Right? Right, Jim? Is that an eternal blood covenant? 
And we are under, as born-again believers, we are under that blood covenant. And the enemy wants to, in fact, the name he's given in Revelation is he's called an accuser. Have you met the accuser any this week? The finger pointer? You think you're such a Christian. You're such a phony. You're such a hypocrite. But Jesus, as we stand under that blood covenant, that we are eternally secure in Christ, Jesus, that he always lives to intercede for us. I don't know all what that means, but let me tell you, I'm, I, I, I appreciate your prayers, but I, I'm glad Jesus is praying for me. Hey, I appreciate your praying. Pray for your pastor. But I'm glad Jesus is praying and that he always intercedes. How all that dynamic works, I don't know. I'm just reading you what the report says there. We are the answer to Jesus' prayer. Last, number four. When we are gaining unity as his body. Verse 21. Jesus prays that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. You know, it's interesting. Paul and throughout the letters, so many warnings to the church about guarding, about guarding the unity of the church. Paul, when he said goodbye to those Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, he warns them. And he calls that, says, ravenous wolves will come in. And they will disrupt the unity of the body. So we understand that we as a local church, a local reflection of Jesus, have to be on guard against, not saying difference of opinion. That's a cult. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about dissension where the enemy wants to breed division, gossip. We don't do gossip here. That's a poison in the church. And the Holy Spirit has mandated uh, that the elders, the leaders, that we guard. We guard and protect the flock. Now, we don't do that in our own strength. We're doing it as, uh, as under-shepherds under the chief shepherd. You see, unity, let me define unity. It's not union. Union has an affiliation with others, but no common bond that makes them one in heart. You might have belonged to a union, a Teamsters union, the Steelworkers union, Ironwork. You're a union. You're, you're union. You have a union and affiliation, but you're not necessarily one in heart. But you have a union. That's not unity. There's uniformity where everybody... It's kind of a, they look alike, they think alike, they carry the same King James Schofield Bible, they, they, they just, you know, they talk the same way. There's groups that I've been around. And good to see Pastor Wendell here, and I think he could affirm this too. That if you're around them within a few minutes, by the way they talk, you can almost guesstimate what Christian religious group or who they've been hanging with. Because they'll start using phrases or, or terminology. And you're like, okay, why? 
And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, families get together, you talk alike, you pick up, I mean, you say phrases. And sometimes it'll shock you because you're like, oh, no, my mama used to say that all the time and now I'm saying it. Or my dad used to say, I mean, so that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying we don't want uniformity where everybody is in lockstep and if anybody disagrees on anything, then somehow we just shut them out. That's, that's, That's how cults grow. So unity is not uniformity, it's not unanimity, meaning that it's just agreement across the board. We never have any, you know, we just always business meetings, I'm thankful we have unanimity in our business meetings, but that's not unity. Unity, listen to me, refers to a oneness of heart, a similarity of purpose, and an agreement on the vital important things as Christians of the word of God. Jesus said, may they have the unity, the oneness that we have, just as we have it. I'm praying that they would have it. Jesus is praying that for us. And sometimes people, when they hear about Jesus's prayer that we may be one, meaning, well, you know, we should never have denominations. We should never have different churches. We should all that this unity means that we're all to be in one church. I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about organizational unity. Listen, we're all different people here. The folks at Kathleen Baptist, they're different. Victory's different. Everybody, God has a, aren't you glad God isn't a God of grays and blacks and just, he's a God of color, variety. And in God's, in the body of Christ, there's great variety, right? You got some shouters, you got some quiet reflectors, right? But guess what the commonality, the union is? It's not organizational. Some of the most disrupted, disunified people have been people that could sign off on a doctrinal statement or a creed, and yet they experience the most disunity because the unity that Jesus is talking about is a unity in the Holy Spirit that we are of one heart and one mind. In Christ, not uniformity. William Barclay, who wrote a lot of New Testament commentaries that were okay, weren't great. He didn't like the miracles, but he did have a few things to say good every once in a while. But I always say a broken clock is right twice a day. But William Barclay did say this. He said the cause of Christian unity, the cause, the the goal of Christian unity at the present time and through all history has been injured and hindered because men, women, people love their own ecclesiastical, that's a big word for church, they love their own ecclesiastical organization and their own creed and their own ritual more than they love each other. Jesus is praying, God, may they be one. Why? So that the world will know that they are my body. Do you think the world, when it looks at the church at large, and you see churches that are suing each other in court, that wasn't anything new. That was happening in the church at Corinth. And there's disunity, there's bad-mouthing, and again, I'm not talking about false religions. I'm talking about people that on the essentials that we are unified around the person and identity of Jesus, uh, born of a virgin, 
uh, died a, a death on the cross that was complete and perfect. The, he was sinless. I mean, the resurrection from the physical body and literally coming out. I mean, all those essential truths. Like I was saying to our new members class, it, it's like if some of you play the game Jenga. How many of you know what that is? It's not judo, Keith. It's Jenga. All right? Just make sure you know the... All right? And you know, you have those little squares of wood, and you pull them out, and the goal is if you pull out the last little square and it all crumbles down, you lose. Guess what? You start removing the core essentials of the Christian faith, it all comes tumbling down. That's why compromise is so deadly. See, And you begin to tinker with the scriptural teaching about who Jesus is. People say, well, we should just be unified in Jesus. I agree, but which Jesus? The Mormon Jesus? The Jehovah's Witness Jesus? The radical social gospel woke Jesus? Which Jesus do you want? Or do you want the Jesus revealed in the pure Word of God? Which Jesus do we want to be unified in? See, unified, don't miss this moving part. What did he say? Sanctify them in the truth. 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 And so unity. Someone said this, I thought it was funny. In the church, there is the bond of family, yet room for variety. In the church, there is the bond of family, but there's always room for a variety. He said the devil tries to disrupt unity. Two chickens tied at the legs and thrown over a clothesline may be united, but they don't have unity. And Jesus says in verse 22, In the glory which you gave me, I've given them that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 24, Father, I desire that those whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Isn't it wonderful that as Jesus prayed, he prayed in this wonderful prayer that he prayed and said, I desire that those that you have given to me, if you're a born-again believer, walking under the joy and freedom of knowing Jesus. Guess what? You're one of those that the Father has given Jesus. Jesus says, I want them to be with me throughout eternity. You got some folks, you don't even want to be with you for a weekend. And this is one that knows everything about us. And Jesus says, I want them Remember who he's praying for. He's not just praying for the 11. He's praying for those that will come to him through those 2,000 years. That's us. That we would be with him. And so the joy is that I know I'll be with him. Jesus said in that great promise, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. 
you know, it's normal. At times we struggle with our own assurance of our salvation. But let me encourage you today, if you're unsure, that could be one or two things that you've never, you've never stepped over that line of faith in a genuine commitment to Christ. But also, sometimes our lack of assurance is just sometimes because of the doubt and the sin, and, and at times we're, we're not relying or understanding the promises that God has given us, and so in our immaturity, we struggle with our identity. Jim had a great message on identity that uh, you'd do well to go back and listen to uh, a couple of months ago. But let me ask you, the things that Jesus prayed, even that last statement where he prayed that those that you have given to me will be with me for all eternity, do you believe that the Father would not answer his son's prayer? So if Jesus is praying that, praying that, that has to do with your own relational security that you have with him, that alone should give you and remind you of great assurance that I may doubt, I may question, but I know that the prayer of Jesus, that the Heavenly Father, His Father, as He was praying, will answer and fulfill and keep that prayer, that those whom you have given to me may be where I am also. How are we doing on being the answer to God's prayer? Glorifying God, living under His protection. And living under His protection isn't just kind of trying to, somebody will say, I'm just trying to keep a step ahead of the devil. Well, stop that. That's crazy. You're not living in fear. You're living under the protection of God. Growing into the full stature of the Son of Man, the Bible talks about the maturity that, that we want to, we want to, Fulfill the intended purpose of what we were not only created for, but renewed in Christ for. And walking in the unity of the body as believers. Not only in the local expression of this local church, but also the church at large. 